Hi, this is Benjamin Light. And this is Marco Sparks. And this is Bros Watch PLL2. Uh, we're doing a special interview episode today. We're joined by Norman Buckley, one of the directors of Pretty Little Liars. Hi, you guys. Hi, how you doing, Norman? Good. How are you? We are doing excellent. We uh, were fortunate enough to visit the set recently when you were directing, and we thought we'd have you on to talk a little bit about the show. Great. I'm ready. All right. Well, uh, just jumping right off, we thought uh, we know you can't talk about anything kind of into the future, but we wanted to just get your thoughts on the the finale. Uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse. Well, I love the finale. I I thought it was I thought it was just as crazy as I always hoped the show would be, and I thought it was beautifully directed by my colleague Ron Lagomarsino, and I love the script that Marlene King wrote. I thought it was um, Boonwell esque. <laughs> uh, I, I I really do think it, it it captured what I love about Pretty Little Liars, which is that essentially the show was psychological, and I thought that it really captured a, a psychological dream state, and and I enjoyed it very much, and uh, I just liked how bonkers it was when I saw <laughs> when I saw Mona coming down the staircase with that Allison mask on. It just made me cheer. <laughs> So I, I, I thought it was a great finale, and I hope that the fans did too. Nothing, nothing beats the sight of Mona wearing a gas mask, combing her blonde hair. <laughs> it's just priceless. There's just no way to know what goes on inside Marlene's head such that uh, she comes up with stuff like that, but I loved it. There was a great sense of just, I think, inevitability to that episode that so much was leading right there. You know, Absolutely. Like, we're going straight into crazy town. <laughs> Uh, I, I just thought it was terrific. I just thought it was thrilling and imaginative and silly and and scary and and uh, I just thought it was wonderful. And I think I think just to harp on it more, like it showed all of those things, but that how comfortable PLL is living there, you know, yes. and all those elements. Well, we're definitely comfortable living there. This <laughs> gets more that way all the time. But uh, I, I I think that the the show has always had a certain dreamlike quality that. That, that I respond to. I, I, I don't think that... I always say whenever we're shooting it, I always say that verisimilitude is not our friend. We're not trying to create a world, real world. We're not trying to create real situations. We're trying to create psychological states. That's what mm-hmm. the, this was about for me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I like about the show. That's what I like trying to do. Uh, so you're into production now, obviously, on, on 602, 603, written by Joseph Doherty. We were just kind of curious because you've been documenting your your prep process, and so we were kind of wondering if you could talk in like a a very minute form of of what that looks like, like preparing to do an episode of PLL. Well, this is my twentieth and twenty first episode of PLL. It, it, it's my twenty second if you count one episode that I supervised. So uh, I'm very close to these guys, and my uh, prep process, particularly with Joe, is it extends even before I've seen the script. He tells me about what he's planning, and then we start talking about what particular references that, that we can draw upon. Both of us are, are huge movie buffs. Both of us um, were steeped in film history, and we're, we're both really fascinated by the aspects of, of um, film history, that, that or, or films in general, that that, that touch people and that make people feel emotion. So what happens with, with Joe and I, and, and, and we've done a couple of episodes where we've cross-boarded them, which means we shoot two at the same time, trying to maximize locations. And so, so this, is, this is something that we've done before. We really get into talking about what the themes of the episode are, what the various visual ways that we can um, 
shoot the show in a way to illuminate those themes. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not the case on every show I work on. <laughs> Sometimes I just show up the end of the script and I'm just like, all right, I'll shoot this. Uh, but with Joe, it's great because he and I, over the, the run of the show, we've done, I think this is our eighth and ninth episode together. We've become really close friends and share a lot. Of, uh, uh, we share a personal aesthetic. So we sit down and we just talk about uh, what, what movies that these particular scripts uh, remind us of and, and what uh, homages we can do to those films. And, and um, then also within that, there's just the practical prepping of a production, which means we, we sit down, we go through what, what's called a concept meeting with the entire crew, where we talk about um, what's necessary, what physical production needs are necessary to pull together for, for a particular episode, what sets need to be built for a particular episode. It's a full week of, of those sorts of meetings with various members of the crew. But within that, you know, Joe and I tend to like go off by ourselves. We'll go off and have a drink at the end of the day. <laughs> talk, talk about what various movies uh, th- these particular episodes remind us of. So as I think you know, uh, in, in these uh, two particular episodes, we're doing a lot of Antonioni and Godard references. I'll say that about Joe Doherty. You know, he really likes to go down the same wormholes I do which are usually about um, trying to pretend I'm a famous filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I hate to be that guy, but to go inside baseball, it was so fascinating yesterday just to watch, in a break between actual production, like you and Joe talking with, like, like Troyan about just films, and, oh, have you seen this? You should see this. It relates to this. And it was so intriguing to watch, like, these, these filmmakers and these actors working together and, like, just talking about their love of film and how it relates to what they're working on. Well, one of the things I really like about Pretty Little Liars is that it's been an opportunity to educate people about certain famous films. If, if only by telling people that this was suggested by Hitchcock's Dialing for Murder or mm-hmm. it was uh, uh, stolen from... Uh, Hitchcock's film, Saboteur, it, it, it actually encourages a lot of the viewers to go back and look at these films, which I feel very happy about. I uh, used to teach at UCLA for several quarters until I just got too busy to do it anymore. And, and uh, yeah, I took great joy in that. I took great joy in, in introducing students to various um, films that, that meant a lot in my life. And, and I would like to think that Pretty Little Liars is a uh, stepping stone <laughs> towards, towards uh, work that I think is, is timeless and classic. It's been my experience that, that a lot of the, the young viewers have uh, have taken us up on that, and, and, and certainly the actors that we work with. I think you made the, the joke yesterday that you turned countless like teenage girls onto Hitchcock. Yes, yes, that's, and I'm proud of that, because I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, Hitchcock was a great artist, and he was a great artist um, that was... Um, uh, underrated in his lifetime, and it's only been since his death that, that there's been this uh, kind of cult that's that's risen up around him. But um, the way that a lot of the young teens feel about Pretty Little Liars is the way that I felt about Hitchcock films growing up. Right. I watched Hitchcock films with the same with the same passion, with the same intensity. I would I would stay up all night to watch a, a Hitchcock film. Now, why is that? I, I I can only think that it's something in in the the material that I'm watching. That 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 that, that uh, triggered something in my psychology that helped me that helped me continue to, to grow, and um, I think that uh, that that's what's curious to me about what what I've worked on several shows that are somewhat of a cultural phenomenon. I worked 
I worked on the OC from the very beginning. From from uh, I edited the pilot, and then I was um, directing only in the four season. But I was with that show every day for the four years of its run. And then I worked on Gossip Girl, which also had a large uh, uh, cult following, and, and and now this show. There's obviously something in each of these shows that, that speaks to these um, viewers in a way that that helps form their their inner psychology, and and, and that fascinates me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that I always want to make sure that I'm taking it seriously. I don't condescend to the material. I don't look at it and think to myself, oh, because it's a teen show, I don't care about the story I'm telling. And it's just a job. It doesn't feel that way at all to me. It's a, it's a passion because I feel like I'm speaking to people's uh, souls on a certain level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how much of your job as director would you say is typically more technical related, like blocking or, or how much is focusing on like performance and whatnot? Well, I think blocking is about performance. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I don't, um, because I, I move from show to show and I, and I am very differential to the way that any particular DP wants to shoot the show. That being said, on these episodes, for instance, as, as I think I told you when you guys were visiting, I'm playing a lot with the framing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm having them frame things in a, in a manner in which they don't usually. Uh, the blocking is absolutely integral to the performance because I, I feel like my job is to figure out a blocking that makes psychological sense so that it just naturally gives the actors a foothold for their performances. And um, I've also, I think, I think I've told you this before. I, I think the mark of a really well-directed episode is if you can turn down the sound and track the emotional storyline. Maybe you don't get all pieces of the plot, but you will understand what the emotions are. You'll understand who's angry at who. You'll understand who's feeling uh, romantic feelings for another person. You'll, you'll understand who feels separated from another person. And a lot of that is in the blocking. A lot of that is in the framing. If you have someone facing away from, from another person while they're talking to them, that tells you something very specific. If you have people connected in a frame, that connects them. If you have them, if you have them separated in, in two separate frames so that you never see them connected, that tells you something else. There's a lot of these very subtle cues that, um, that a lot of people don't necessarily pick up on consciously, nor do you want them to pick, pick up on it consciously. You just want them to have an experience. You want them to feel what the characters are feeling as much as you're able. Uh, I think I was telling you yesterday, I, I, I have issues with the Ezra-Aria relationship just from a point of view of the power dynamics. I, I think that it's very, very important to therefore um, tell that story in a very specific way. So I usually always frame her over him. He's usually sitting down. She's usually standing up or he's looking up to her. So that in my mind, it's a very subtle cue that she is the one that's in control, not him. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, is, is important because I think that there's, there's a romanticizing of a certain kind of patriarchal idea that, that can happen in, in films and television shows. And, I, and I'd like to subvert that, you know, because I don't, I don't subscribe to it. Right. Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing is very much what, what I'm thinking about from the um, planning side of any individual episode. And, and, I, and I really look for opportunities to do that. And then I collaborate very closely with the director of photography. And if he has a, if he has a better way to shoot it or if he wants to shoot it from this side versus that side so that people are lit better or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that, that differs from show to show to show to show. And each, each time I go onto a new show, I always ask the, the director of photography how he likes to shoot the show. Some directors like to use steady cam a lot. Some of them don't. Some of them like to shoot things long lens. 
I, I try not to violate the style of the show. Uh, I think it's it's my job to really study the show that I work, the study the shows that I work on, and determine uh, how they shoot it, and in, in what ways that I might you know find my own way to in, imprint my style on it without subverting theirs. So uh, it's a, it's a very close collaboration. One thing one thing we were wondering. Um... When you get a script, are there ever any specific style notes or like kind of notes to the director in the script? Like they really want something shot a certain way or would that be more something you guys just go over and prep? Well, I think it's both. I think that Joe's scripts um, tend to be written almost like a story. The, the, the action lines between the dialogue are, are, are really beautifully written prose describing the feeling of a scene. And, and then he, he allows me a lot of freedom in how to interpret that. But he'll, he'll often write really beautiful transitions into his scripts that I would be a fool not to use. So I, I end, end up doing exactly what he wrote. Some other of the writers may write things more specifically or less specifically, just depending on the individual writer. There's a lot of give and take. We, we said, we talk about it. We talk about what's really important. If I have a different point of view about it, I'll just talk about what I think is the, the point of the scene or what's important about it. Uh, if the writer feels strongly in another direction, then I'm going to defer to the writer. because mm. it, I, I always say that when I work on a show, I'm double parked. You know, I'm, I'm uh, not, I don't live there. They do. So, so I'm a guest mm -hmm. and I want to make sure that I'm making the show that, that they want to see. But uh, I, I have a strong visual sense. I think some writers do, some writers don't. I think one of the reasons I really enjoy working with Joe as much as I do is that he has a, a very similar visual sense. He has a, a similar visual aesthetic. We refer to a lot of the same things when we're talking about a scene, so so I um, find it a very easy collaboration. I find it very easy with all of the writers of Pretty Little Liars. They're all, they're all delightful. I've worked with all of them at this point. I, I, this is my I think it's my 20th and 21st episode, and I, and I nice, super, supervised the 22nd episode of, uh, of another director's uh, who was a first-time director. And so it's it's kind of my home base, Pretty Little Liars. It's the show I do the most of. It's it's a family to me. These people mm -hmm. are really important to me, and I'm very close to them. Uh, and I've, and I've, at this point, I've worked with every writer on the writer's staff. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I know all of their quirks and all of their idiosyncrasies. Uh, and I enjoy working with every single one of them. You are still the director with the most episodes of PLL under your belt. I think Ron Lagmarcino is lagging you by just a few. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've done the most, that's right, um, which I'm happy about. <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, just mostly because I just love working with those guys. I really do. I, lo I love working with all of them. One of the great things about working on, on uh, Pretty Little Liars is uh, just the, the collaboration that exists between... Um, between myself and the, and the crew, I've done so many episodes now that it's it's just we have such a shorthand. I mean, I consider Larry Reedman one of my finest collaborators, and and uh, there's there's so much that that is good in my episodes that that I that I owe to his expertise and, and his point of view and the way that he sees the world, uh, very similarly to the way that I do, and and I I just enjoy um, those kinds of interactions. Uh, I feel the same thing about. Uh, um, Fred Andrews, the production designer, and um, uh, well, the, the entire crew—Mandy Line, Fred, uh, Jacob, um, uh, Larry Reedman—these uh, th guys are are—they um, um, make me look better. 
So it's a it's a real familial experience, and I enjoy that. I enjoy going back to the same show over and over again. You, you develop a shorthand. You develop personal relationships with these people. They they become my friends. You know, all all four of the girls are my friends. Well, not just the four girls. Many of the cast. The cast is large, and and I've I've grown very close to to many of the members of the cast. The excitement that they they show for learning about things. I. I remember I introduced Troy into Barbara Stanwyck. I said she reminded me of a young Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> and uh, she went back and watched The Lady Eve, which is one of my favorite films, and was so enthused about it. And and, and, and I take great joy from passing on what I know uh, to another generation. I think that um, that is the best thing we can do in life, I think, is to pass on what you know and what you love. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, <laughs> Bill Lars is a it is a, a unique environment in the sense that everyone really likes each other. We're six seasons in and everybody still really likes each other, which I think is, is an extraordinary thing. When when does like the performance of the very scenes take shape? Is that something that starts with the read through or does that more come when you, you actually get to the set and start doing the rehearsals? Well, the read through is just so that everybody can hear the dialogue out loud. And so if there's any final changes that, Either the writers or the studio or the network want to see in, in, in terms of the, of the story that's being told. I think that every director probably does it differently. I, I try not to draw many conclusions about anything until I just see it up on its feet. I, mm-hmm. I like to um, prepare a uh, blocking that I think makes psychological sense. I, I try to think about how people should move through the through the space, the physical space, so that you can um, see the visual story being told. I, I really believe in the idea of using the frame to help tell the story as much as you use the dialogue or anything else. I don't I don't like shows that are just talking heads. I try not to do that. I try to to to, to always have people moving about. I always like to try to compose a shot where you're basically telling the story visually. In my prep, I'm always trying to develop a compositional component, which I, I then present to the actors. And, and the actors will let me know if that resonates with them or not. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they say, well, that doesn't feel right to me for this reason or that reason or whatever. And then we, we try it. We move through the paces of it, but we don't necessarily dial in all the details. Then I want to see what they bring to the table. I want to see what preparation they've done, if any. <laughs> because, uh, when when uh, when a show is uh, moving as fast as a, as a, a large order television show does, sometimes the actors are just doing all they can just to keep up with the scene that's right in front of them. Uh, I've spent days on end thinking about it, thinking about it from every which way, so that if if they have a bump or if something doesn't resonate with them, I, I can present them with an alternative idea or a, a different uh, approach. Uh, or I, I wait and see what they offer. And um, so, you know, usually I don't say anything about performance at all until I just see what we get in the first take. Hmm. And, okay. and I, really, I resist writers who, who, because on some shows, writers will say, make sure you tell the actor this, that, and the other. And I don't like to do that because I, I feel like that that squashes whatever creativity the actor may bring to the mm-hmm. process. An actor may may uh, have a completely different point of view that you haven't thought of that might surprise you, and you eliminate the opportunity for surprise by going in with notes too early. So I think you 
you saw the other day when you were on the set and the scene that you observed, the first take was was kind of chaotic and a bit messy. <laughs> and then uh, we did it again, we did it again, until we started to get it dialed in. And so by the time you get into the, the coverage, when you're singling people out for their various pieces of coverage, then you can really hone in on the details of what you're looking for. Mm. I always try to look at a master just with the perspective of, okay, what do I need to get right in this shot? At what point am I liable in my editorial process to use the master? At what point will I be there? And as long as I, as I know I've got that part dialed in, then I can move on to the various pieces of coverage. Mm-hmm. But my process is to let the scene continue to evolve as we as we work out these various beats. And in my editorial brain, because I was an editor for many years before I started directing, my editorial brain is always looking for the various pieces that I know that I'll need to assemble the scene. And that's all I'm interested in. I'm not looking at any one take as being a full performance. Mm-hmm. And, and quite frankly, because my editing background, I've worked with a lot of different directors. And, and the way that I could tell the good directors from the ones that were less good was how much they felt the need to have every take be a perfect performance. I could give a shit if every take is a perfect performance. I don't, I don't need it to be a perfect performance. I just needed to have perfect pieces within it. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I know that it's going to be put together and I, and I have a very clear idea of how I want it put together. And so I'm only interested in making sure I get those pieces that I need to put it together the way that I think it should go together, but that also give the producers and the studio and the network enough flexibility. So if they choose to make some different choices, they have those options. The short answer to your question is, I I wait and see what the actor brings to the table. And usually in the long run of a show, the actors pretty much know who their characters should be or or what they should be doing. And then I um, go in and and ask them to think about specific things, but not all at once. I never never go in and, and, and load an actor down with 10 different notes. I'll go in and say, focus on this one thing or focus on these two things. And, and then the following take, I'll give them something else. And then the following take, I'll give them something else. So if, if the performance is off, sometimes it's perfectly mm-hmm. fine the way they're doing it. But um, occasionally, you'll have an actor who just is way off. And if that's the case, then I'll, I'll just take them aside and I'll say, well, what do you think the point of the scene is? Why do you think this scene is in the script? Mm-hmm. Now, what their thought about it is, and if, uh, if, if it's really different than mine, then I'll present mine and, you know, I'll, I'll listen to theirs. It's been my experience that most of the time I've thought about it more than they have because they've generally just done one quick read of the script at the table read and, and, and maybe learn their lines that morning for the work they had to do that day. Every actor is different. I don't want to make a generalization about that. But I have thought about it more than they have in terms of like what, what the psychological components are and what the, what the various beats are to get them to where they are in that particular scene. So most of the time... It's my experience that actors understand that quickly with me and trust me and, and allow me to direct them. But if they have a strong feeling in a different direction, I will never make an actor do something that they don't want to do. If an actor says, no, absolutely not, I, I won't do that, then it is not my job to make them. Right. Right. I, I, I respect 
their choice. And if it becomes something that the writer feels really strongly about, then then it's up above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> let somebody else kind of kind of uh, intercede there, uh, because I, I feel like again on a television show, the director is a guest usually, unless he's a producing director. But the director is a guest; he's visiting, and I and I and I um, want to honor what the writer wants, but I also want to honor what the actor wants. And um, so, so that, that's that's a very rare occurrence where you really reach any kind of impasse. Your job is basically to deliver some perfect rooms into somebody else's dollhouse. Uh, I, I try to think about uh, making sure that they like the rooms that I deliver, yes. You had a great point the other night, too. You were talking about blocking and, and lighting and that, you know, your mother at home needs to be able to watch PLL and know exactly what's going on on screen. <laughs> Well, my mom, my mom is a um, is a very smart, interesting woman. She's she's almost ninety, and um, I always ask myself, would she understand this? Mm -hmm. And if I think she'd be confused by it, then I know that the show's got a problem. <laughs> I, I I just think that she's a, a, a wonderful bellwether for me. Mm -hmm. I, I always ask myself, like, would she get this? Would she understand this? And uh, is it something that I could explain to her quickly if she seemed to be confused or is it convoluted and hard to explain? And if it's convoluted and hard to explain, then the show's probably not going to survive. I'm picturing in my mind you on the phone of your mom trying to explain Ezria in season <laughs> six to her. You know, my mom, is uh, she's, she's a fan of the show, you know, she, she, she's a fan of the show. She probably could explain Ezria. <laughs> Well, it's really interesting to me, you know, I mean, most of my knowledge of uh, film production comes from watching movies where there's like a movie or TV show within it. And typically, it's always the director has to come in and explain everyone's motivation to them. You know, it's like, probably really overdone. It was fascinating to me see, to see how the actors just went right in and did it like they are, they all had something ready to go, you know, on the first take there. And then he kind of worked with it rather than, you know, you having to come in and explain everything beforehand. Well, on a television show, they know their characters, mm -hmm. and, and they know the continuing story. Um, there's there's the occasional situation where you'll have to remind somebody, remember you came from this scene or that scene, but, mm -hmm. but most of my notes tend to be about, uh, well, I have a bit of a counterintuitive way of, of directing. A lot of directors, from what I understand, will go in, and because they're focusing on the single take as opposed to thinking about the cuts, they're, they're basically telling the actors to pick up the pace, you know, speak faster, you know, pull it together, make it tighter, you know, because they're almost directing it like a stage show. I don't do that. I, I, I do exactly the opposite. I usually am, am telling the actors, slow it down. I need to see the beats between these lines, because the editing room is where you find the pace. And I, I, I don't want actors saying things that they're not thinking about or feeling. So if it requires slowing them down, so that they have the time to have the thought that gives rise to the next line. That's what I would rather have them do. And then I'll fix the pace in the editing room. Mm -hmm. Because you can always contract, you can contract a moment in the editing room, but you can't expand it. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of directors, particularly young directors, don't understand that. And so they're watching it at the monitors thinking, oh, it feels slow, it feels slack. But who cares? Because you, you can fix that in the editing room as long as you're in coverage. Now, if you're doing a one which I almost never do, 
Mm-hmm. But but if you are, then of course you have to rehearse it and get it right, and you have to shoot it until you get it right. But I almost never shoot a one-hour because on the television schedule, it can really tie you up for a while. Whereas even if I if I if I do a cool Steadicam shot, I'll always give myself some way to condense it, mm-hmm. just in case when you get the whole show together and the overall schema of the show, it might feel too long. And, and so I always give myself some type of coverage, something where I can collapse if necessary. And uh, particularly on a network show where you have commercials, you have a, a precise time. It has to be, I forget what it is now, 44 minutes or something and, and change, but it has to be precisely that. You can't <laughs> run a minute over if you just happen to have an extra minute that you want to use. So um, I always give myself options to be able to collapse it or expand it like an accordion. I learned that because when I was an editor, I would frequently be on these notes calls with the uh, studio or network uh, executives, and they'd be saying something like, well, can you carve out a moment where they look at each other here, where they really where they really check in with each other? And if, if you don't have it, you don't have it. Right, right. But if you slow actors down and, and you get those moments between the lines, then you can you, you can decide in the editing room where to put the pregnant pause in or, or where to uh, uh, have them talking over each other as long as you're as long as you have the coverage to do that and um so that's that's kind of been one of my um signature ways of directing and i've sometimes had writers say well you need to tell them to pick up the pace and i'm just like "Uh, no that's just not the way i direct the way i direct is the way i direct and and what i do is i slow them down and i make the actors feel comfortable and i make them feel like they have the um the freedom to take their time so that that I can really see that they're feeling what they're saying. And it makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if a writer is in doubt about that, I, I often say, uh, respectfully, just let me put it together and I'll show it to you. Mm-hmm. And, and then you can see if, if it doesn't work really well. And, and I almost always am invited back to shows, so it must work. Yeah. So. <laughs> I'm thinking in like in film terms, like. My the two examples that come in my head are like polar opposites of film. There's like George Lucas, who the perception is everything he shoots is towards the editing room because that's where he compiles the movie. That's when the movie takes shape to him. And then I'm thinking of like stuff that I read of Woody Allen, where an actor will say, "Would you want a second take?" And you know, I'm fighting like not doing a Woody Allen accent, and he's like, "God no, don't give me options. I can't. I can't freak out. Like, I I have a perfect take. That's it. I don't need any more options." And I always I always find that kind of those two styles fascinating. You know, obviously. With something like star wars you you need <laughs> editing room stuff but I, I like what you were saying about the two i wanted to throw us in about the framing because you know especially when you're doing these two episodes with the antonioni references and if you've been paying attention to twitter we've talked a lot about michelangelo antonioni antonioni um it almost it's like with his movies it was like a like a geometry of emotion was in the frame you could do like right angles of anxiety and, and alienation <laughs> Right. Well, that really that really interests me. And, and, you know, I feel like I've really tried to do that in a uh, subliminal way throughout my quite frankly, on all my shows. I try to think in those terms. I try to think in terms of trying to find an emotional component in terms of the of the framing. But but I would say that in these two episodes, we're really we're really going out there and trying. We're composing some shots that are that are uh, designed to evoke that same kind of response of those Antonioni films. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm a big fan of his movies. Uh, and I, when I taught at UCLA, I would frequently show certain sequences. Some people get it, 
Some people don't, but I, I believe that everybody does on a subliminal level, whether they know it or not. And uh, Joe and I are, are being very specific about some of the, the, the framing in this as a way of making you feel something very specific. I don't want to tell you any more about it until after you see the episodes, but uh, you know, I hope it works. I, I think it, it, it's, it's designed to express a certain, as, as Joe put it, Gravity has shifted, hmm. and I and I and I um, uh, like that that thought, and and so I'm 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 hopeful that it works as well as I think it will. But most of all, it's for me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really care whether, whether the teen girls who love Pretty Little Liars <laughs> look at the the show and go, "Wow, Antonioni reference," you know. But I but I but I like it for me as a way of enhancing my own appreciation of his films. I mean, it's the same reason I do Hitchcock references. I, I'm not doing it for any other reason than it's just a way of expressing my love of Hitchcock. So, so a lot of what I'm doing on Pretty Little Liars, and, and it's nice because I'm, I'm given permission to do that, uh, is, 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 is exploring my own love of the films I loved. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's where the, the homages come in it's not so much about anything other than that it's like an opportunity for me to really play with and experiment with that the process is much more important to me than the the final result i want the final result to be as good as possible i I want i want to deliver a a great episode that fits the style and and i want it to fit into the style of the show the things i do the the hitchcock references the antonioni references the, the screwball comedy references all of those things are just are exploring they're exploring for me and me figuring out my own aesthetic right mm-hmm. speaking of uh sequences can you think of any particular like favorite sequences from the episodes you've done like ones you, you really liked or thought worked really well there's always in every episode i do there's there's some sequence or other that i really like uh, i was just looking over the list of episodes i've done let me just see here like the very first episode i did I was very, very specific about doing a lot of Edward Hopper references. And so there were sequences where I was really trying to capture the same kind of feeling you had in, in certain Edward Hopper paintings. Because when I first worked on the show, they had pictures, they had Edward Hopper paintings everywhere in the office. They were really using that as a, as a, as a reference point for the aesthetic of Rosewood. And, and I thought, okay, well, if we're going to do that, let's really do that. Let's really strip down the frame. Let's, let's have very few extras. Uh, if you look at my shows versus some of the other shows that some of the other directors do, I, I use background in a much more minimal way than a lot of the other directors do, unless it's a big party scene. But but I, I, I try to, to keep the, the frame really um, uh, stripped down and the lines really simple, like a lot of those paintings. Uh, and so I really enjoyed that first episode for that I, I because I was very specific about, okay, this is this painting, this is that painting. Uh, and also the, the photography of Gregory Crutzen, I was really inspired by him because there was that kind of sense of the eerie or the, the, the unexpected uh, commonplace setting. So that, that was the very first episode I did. And the second one was the homecoming episode. And I was really inspired by Max Ophels. I'd been watching a lot of Max Ophels at that particular time. And and I told the production designer, Rachel Cameraman, about, I saw, I've been watching these films, and I just think uh, there's this aesthetic about them that I really like. And so there's just some wacky shit in that episode, you know, where uh, 
that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. There's this whole homecoming dance where they where they are in this this kind of completely otherworldly. Looks like a French carnival of some kind. And uh, I, I think that uh, there's large sequences in that show that I think are just terrific and so satisfying to me because we just went out there and did that. You know, it just wasn't it, it, it wasn't based on any idea of like, and this is in the gym. <laughs> it was just this completely otherworldly space. So that's one of my favorite episodes. Remembering the homecoming episode, my favorite shot that sticks in my memory from that, and I know we've screen capped it somewhere, other than <laughs> you know the Pixie Sith Lord scene, is uh, there's one where Ari and Ezra are working the booth they're working, and he's in the foreground, you know, talking to whoever, putting on the nice face, and there's Arya like her head poking through that little heart. Oh yeah, you know, and the the beanbag thing as she's emoting to him, and it's it's such a perfect shot. Like like you said, it conveys everything you need to know about that scene in one still image. I mean, her head is literally outlined, you know, those giant eyes in a heart shape. Yeah, it's so ridiculous, but it was. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, that you know, like uh, Max Ophuls. I don't know if you're familiar with him as a filmmaker, but he always used a lot of foreground, and he had a lot of uh, long sequences, long long shots which we tried to play with we did a little bit of that uh, yeah also uh the homecoming episode has uh, one of my favorite um small references uh it has a there was a scene from all about eve where i i really enjoyed the fact that betty davis was upset and she she's in an argument with the guy she's involved with and she's upset and yet she's at the same time trying to decide whether to eat this chocolate or not which i just thought was such a what's I mean, who knows if the director directed that or whether that was just something Betty Davis came up with, but she opens this tin of chocolates and she takes one and she puts it back and puts the top back on and then she opens it again and pops it in her mouth. And and so I, I, the morning that we shot this scene between Mona and Hannah, I, I just took the YouTube video out to, to Ashley Benson and I said, this is what I want to do. And she was so game. She was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it exactly like that. And, and she did. And, and I just love stuff like that. I just love things that, that make me laugh when I watch. And we did the same thing. There was a scene that um, was from an old movie called The Mad Miss Matin, which there was an episode, I can't remember. I think it was season three where um, Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda are at this table. He comes up and asks her if, if, if she wants to dance. And she says, no. And then he gets up and starts to walk away and she chases him down and starts dancing with him. And so, yeah, I did that with Hannah and Toby when they were at the church dance. And it wasn't <laughs> in the script. It was just something that I, I, I turned to the writer and I just said, I really want to do this. And she was like, great, let's do it. You know, so we just added it in. Things like that I love. Um, I'm trying to think that I, I think probably that a couple of the sequences I'm most proud of are um, <laughs> what? Again, it's it's ridiculous, but it's 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 what I like about the show is that it's so ridiculous. It's the sawmill scene where Shay's in the coffin on the conveyor belt about to be sawed in half, and, and the girls go running into the sawmill to save her, and then Lucy gets into a jujitsu fight with Cece. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy, you know. Yeah. The whole thing is crazy, and we did a deliberate ripoff of the scene in Saboteur where the guy's hanging off the Statue of Liberty and. The, the coat rips. I mean, everything was was uh, was designed to kind of pay homage to that. But but I also it was so nutty because if you look at it, the, the coffin is not even. There's no way to chain a coffin to a conveyor belt. 
<laughs> I remember you get you gave a shit about that. How did you miss this? <laughs> <laughs> so we just kind of like I said, ah, you know, just tape it down there, and then you know, like nobody's gonna be asking the question of like, how do you do that? <laughs> and uh, so you know, stuff like that. And it, it's also just to me, it's just so crazy. It's like, why would A go to the trouble of kidnapping Emily <laughs> and sticking her in a coffin and? And then Cece, Cece falls like 10 feet. Leaving her phone in the coffin with her so that she can call <laughs> for help. You know what I mean? It's just, the whole thing is ridiculous. But 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 I, I think that sequence is so exciting. And I, I remember when we finished uh, putting it together, I was so excited about it. I went down the hall and got Marlene. I had her come watch it right away because it, it just was kind of thrilling. And um, then there was a lot of stuff in the, the season five premiere in the theater, which I really liked. We had the the theater set was actually at the actual theater, but then we also brought all of the scenery back to the sound stages so that we could shoot the close-ups back there. And so that, that to me, is just a, a real um, tour de force in terms of its editing, that you don't know the difference. You, you would be hard-pressed to tell me which scenes were at the actual theater and which ones were shot back on the soundstage because it's so seamless. Mm-hmm. And, and that was just, that, that kind of thing is exciting to me because it's a tribute to the set designer and the DP. It just it brings everybody's skill level up because you, you have to be so so uh, detail oriented and, and, and I think those sequences are probably the ones that jump out to me the most. <laughs> that episode you combine two of the greatest things about PLL because there is the the scene of Hannah and Emily and Spencer you know on the couch there on that theater set. Like just talking about how they're they're almost like afraid of what life of AA would have been like, where they wouldn't have had each other, what they'll do without A, you know, what have you. And then you also have that great where A is chasing Allison down the streets of New York. Those yeah. the shadows and the tension of the people and the wayward jazz musicians. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's great, you know, because it's uh it's a um again, it's a dreamscape and it's it's also it's self-referencing. It's making everything very theatrical on purpose. And, and um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of patience with people who say, well, the story doesn't make any sense. I'm just like, well, of course it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's it's dream logic. Or, or, or I, I never understand this obsession with the timeline. You know, it's like, so what? Yes, it, it moves all over the place. But the emotions, I think, are very real. Mm-hmm. I watch the show when I don't work. I watch the show because I just enjoy it. I enjoy right. the relationships of the four girls, and I think that their um, their relationships are, are, are very honest. Mm-hmm. And I think their performances, all, all four of them, all five of them, including Sasha, all six of them, including Janelle, they're very honest. They play they play it for real emotion, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I like anything that, that captures that. That scene that you were talking about on the stage—that's one of my favorite scenes that I've done. It's a wonderful scene. I think, I think it's a wonderfully you, written scene. I think it has, it has a great art to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you're right. I mean, the core of these girls and their emotional truth is what keeps us going. But also, if you believe that Emily could be chained to a coffin, you know, about to be sawed in half, if you can accept that and enjoy that, it's not that much of a jump to the girls being kidnapped and ending up in the dollhouse. You know, what matters is still how they experience it and how they deal with it. And it's also just, it's just, there's no reality there. I mean, right. I wouldn't want to watch a show that was real in that regard to see right. girls tortured for six seasons. No. <laughs> like something, you know, like if it were, if it were more real, I wouldn't like it. Exactly. I, I, I like it because it's just in the realm of, of, uh, 
myth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's not real. I, I I wouldn't want to watch a show where somebody was torturing people that yeah, long yeah, and, yeah. and that maliciously and that um, thoroughly. Yeah. It would be it would be it would be disgusting, and then it would be six seasons of PTSD. It'd be it'd be Theon in uh, Game of Thrones, basically. Yeah. Uh, so one question we had was just in terms of the editing. I know you have a lot of background as an editor. Um, how much input on your episodes do you have into the process? Like, do you is there ever like a certain song you want to use for a montage, or like what what is that process like? Yeah, no, I have a director has has several days in the room with the editor before technically before anybody else can see it. I, I do try to spend my time with the editors. I, I have great respect for what editors bring to a show. Having been one myself, I, I think that a, a television editor is probably one of the people that is least respected in the television industry, but one of the ones who has the most impact. I think a good television editor has a greater impact on the look and feel of a, of a TV series than most of the visiting directors do. Mm. But they they are not valued in the same way in terms of what they make, or you know they they get no back end. So when I was doing it, I realized, well, I don't want to be here because you know, <laughs> I I don't feel appreciated relative to what my contribution is. Mm-hmm. And so I I moved into directing, and then I thought, well, I I'm, this is really better for me anyway. But I have great respect for what editors do, and I have great respect for what the, what a good editor will really bring to the process because they bring a a psychological perspective if they're good. And so I, I, I try to not be too directive about what I want them to do or how I want them to put together the material. Initially, I started directing when I was on the OC and I was still editing at the time. And so my initial editors on my episodes were people who had been my assistants. And so I, <laughs> was very, very controlling initially about, no, no, it must be put together exactly like this. And um, I started to realize that that was limiting myself in the same way that with an actor, you don't want to be too controlling. Why, why would you be that way with an editor? So I try to give them a lot of latitude, though I shoot things that's very clear that it goes together in a certain way. But if there's a certain song I really like, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I suggested to them the song in the hundredth uh, episode, "Every Breath You Take." That that was my suggestion. Okay. There's been some others. I I can't remember right off the top of my head, but there's been some other songs that that I've suggested. Uh, that uh, Pretty Little Liars is a great music supervisor. His name is Chris Bolier, and um, uh, and the editors all the editors and the assistants all have excellent music taste. Mm-hmm. So I'll have to wait and see what they present me with. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll su- suggest a song and say, see if this works or, or let me hear some options of things. And, and sometimes they'll use something that I don't think works at all. And I'll say, well, let's take that out and find something else or, or, uh, let's try score here instead of a song or, uh, it just, it just all depends. A lot of the, um, retro song choices oftentimes are written into the script. I think it was my idea to use the Edith Piaf song when, uh, CC flew off to Paris at the end of the <laughs> season five premiere. I, I, I'm pretty sure that was my idea. I said, I think it would be fun to try some, some eat it be off. It, you know, it's just a get, it's like anything else. It's a give and take. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's the, the best, in the best sense, you want 
an editor who is really going to challenge you to think about something that you haven't thought of, but you also want to bring them your ideas. I have a story about Gossip Girl where one of my assist, one of my former assistants was the editor on an episode, and um, he uh, cut this last. There was a, there was a sequence at the end of the show that I had conceived in a completely different way than what he presented to me, and he had used opera over the the whole last three or four minutes of the of the episode, and it was stunning. Mm-hmm. And I I would have never thought to use a piece of opera that would have never occurred to me on that show. And uh, I thought it was great, but I was like, I don't know if the producers will like it, but sure, show it to them and see what they mm-hmm. see what they think. But it was such a clever use of uh, opera, and it was so beautifully put together and, and, and different different than what I had, had planned. So I, was, I was very impressed. That experience, probably as much as any other, made me realize I need to back off and, and let the next person down the line show me something. I often say to writers, if a writer is too micromanaging on a set, I will often say, look, this is the process. The writer essentially gives it to the director. The director essentially gives it to the actors. The actors essentially give it to the editor, and then they give it back to the writers again. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of a round robin. And every step along the way, you want to you want that that new pollination to come in and, and show you something, you know, show you something different, show you something that, that, that your consciousness couldn't produce alone. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the most exciting things about it. I think the the Denmark and Winter thing doing the police cover is really interesting because they brought them back to do the cover in the the five A finale when Mona in air quotes dies, and then I mean Edith Piaf I feel like is now synonymous with with Cece in our minds. I mean she she flew off at the end of Escape to New York there, and basically like the rest of the show is just her incepting us. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have to ask now. So talking about the OC, like uh, Imogen Heap, hide and seek. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like maybe some people don't know this. Um, you're kind of secretly uh, responsible for the the hide and seek montage. Is that right? Uh, well, I wouldn't say that. I would say that I was responsible for like uh, we had a music supervisor on that. Uh, he's one of my great friends and who is is, is brilliant. A woman named Alex Batsavas. and Alex Batsavas had introduced me to Imogen Heap, and and we used her earlier in that season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I remember getting pushback from Josh at the time, like ah, I don't know, you know. And I was like, oh no, you should really listen to this woman. She's really, she's really great. And then the hide and seek song was was written into the script, and mm-hmm. it was written into that particular script. So the only thing that I'll say is that I pushed Imogen Hip Heap on uh, on on Josh. That that I really said like, no, oh, no, you should really listen to her. She's great. Now at what point he listened to the whole album and decided to pick that song I, I don't know but i did cut that sequence and uh that that i was the editor on that sequence it was directed by um the producing director on the oc was a guy named ian toynton and um but that was uh that was scripted that the, the uh song is used over the funeral of um gosh i can't even remember the character's name now but um it was used over the funeral earlier in the episode and then it came back at the end of the episode when, when there was that um sequence where the older brother Trey got shot. I don't remember <laughs> the character's name, but he's Alan, Alan Dale, Dale, who played yeah. Charles Woodmore and Lost. Yeah, so, so what was it like seeing the that, SNL skit? So that, that's Gossip Girl. You know, these shows all started to run together in my right. mind for a while. <laughs> what was it like seeing like the SNL skit? Well, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> it's, it's been interesting for me because I've worked on three shows that have become 
part of pop culture in a very, very large way. The OC, Guys and Girls and Pretty Little Liars. And then I've worked on a lot of other shows that also have broken real ground in, in their own way. Different shows uh, from, from you know, Switch the Birth to the Fosters to Jane the Virgin. You know, so I, I, I really uh, uh, have been extremely fortunate to, to work on these shows that seem to hook into something in the pop culture. But uh, yeah, it, you know, when you make, when you're a question on Jeopardy or you end up on SNL, then you feel like, well, that's cool. You know, we did that. <laughs> <laughs> I've arrived. Yeah. <laughs> I, I loved working on the OC. It was, it was a real labor of love for me. Because as I say, I edited the pilot and then I directed second unit on the finale. I actually directed about half of the actors right out of the show. I did their last scenes. I did the last scene with Peter Gallagher. I did the last scene with um, Kelly Rowan. I did the last scene with Adam and Rachel. Mm. And, uh, it was it was quite a, a unique experience to be with the show from the very very beginning to the very very end. Right. So it has a lot of uh, nostalgia for me. Hmm. So if uh, if Peter Gallagher was on Pretty Little Liars, who would he be? What would he? What kind of character do you think he'd play? Well, I think he'd probably uh, probably be defending a. <laughs> 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 I feel like he's you know public defender, so he'd uh, be in there working for the underdog. Can you just imagine a courtroom scene of Peter Gallagher facing off with uh, Nolan Veronica. North? Yeah, or Veronica and Nolan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they, uh, they both be back there. Um, yeah, no, that would be fun. That would be a lot of fun. I, Peter Gallagher is a, is a great guy and a great friend. I'd like to like cross-pollinate a lot of my shows. Like mm-hmm. bring kinds of people from, from this show or that show and uh, deal with uh, the citizens of Rosewood. Well, Peter Gallagher on the OC, especially for, I know for, I think for both of us watching that show back in the day, it was kind of like a Nolan North thing where, you know, you have some formidable, great actors doing work, but then here's this character and it's the right combination of a character and an actor where, I don't know, it's like, I just kind of end up following them, like drifting towards them and seeing what they're doing. Like, even where, I mean, scenes with like Spencer and Peter Hastings are amazing. And yet, as great as Troy and Belisario is, as captivating as she is, sometimes I'm just watching Nolan North like how he holds a glass of scotch <laughs> just captivates me for reasons I can't explain. He's such, a, he's such a funny guy, too. He is is truly one of the funniest human beings I've ever met. And uh, it, it's funny because I, I, one of my favorite scenes that I've done in Pretty Little Liars, uh, now that I think about it, is there was a scene where Toby and Spencer are making out in the truck, and then she thinks she sees somebody over in the De Laurentiis house watching them, and so she goes over to confront them and it turns out to be her dad. And then they get into this huge fight out on the road. And, and, uh, I mean, I just love it because it's so perverse. The whole thing is so perverse. The mm-hmm. idea that just like looking out the window, watching them in the truck or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> Nolan, I remember was really afraid to go too big. Like he's, well, you know, I just don't want to, should I yell? And I was like, Yes, yes. I said, just really go there. I said, if it's too big, I'll tell you. And so, you know, he's hitting the truck and everything as they're driving away. It's that, that's one of my favorite sequences. That sequence is great. That shot at the end there, too, just, where you you have Spencer in the passenger seat and, like, you're leaving. Like, the camera's mounted on the truck, yeah. Yeah, it's that's a great shot. It is a great shot. And uh, I, I have to give uh, credit for that, the idea of that shot to, to, the, uh, to the DP at the time. I think Damon Gonzalez, he had suggested that shot, which I thought was a wonderful shot. And but that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That's that's a very architectural shot. It, it's something that makes you feel something very specific. 
it's not the same as just seeing a car, you know, pull out and pass you. It's it's it, it's not just the the fact that there's a hood mount. It's the fact the way it's framed so that you can see the dad in the background as it as it departs. And uh, I, I love that shot. But uh, I'd like to claim credit for it, but it wasn't my <laughs> idea. But but it was it, it was a perfect capper to that sequence, which yeah, you know, yeah. I feel very very happy about. So one of our favorite characters, and you're talking about your cross-boarded episodes in season four, is Hector Lime from Cat's Cradle and FaceTime. Uh, we don't even have a question to ask about that. We're just we're just something about that character still utterly fascinates us. Yeah, you know, I was talking to Joe about that because I, I told him that you guys were were interested in him as a character, and uh, I don't even know what to say in, in, in response <laughs> to your absence of a question because he, he was just a weird character, and and I I love the idea of some guy out in the woods who's blackmailing these women into planning and make masks of their face. It's just as weird as a gas mask on Mona. You know? well, it's perfect like, name to Hector Lime. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I think was, uh, you know, a tribute to the third man. I just love that whole sequence, though. You know, the girls kind of roaming around that mask shop. And then they go back and do it again. And or, or he was so creepy. And they just submit. <laughs> they just, sure, yeah, you can, you can make a mask of Emily's face. Go ahead, Em. You know, it's like we're we're gonna poke around back here in the dark. <laughs> you know. So was that a was that a situation where you like you had to get it in one take where they they put all the the plaster on Emily's face there? You know, I don't remember. I I don't remember it being that kind of situation. I I don't remember. It's been a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But no, I think we had it worked out in some way where we had we had different versions of the of the plaster, you know, so that we could start it on her face. Then we had another version that was. I think we I think we did it in reverse, you know, like we took it mm-hmm. off of her face and then we mm-hmm. we worked it back the other direction so that at the end we were just doing the stuff that was the messiest. I guess the thing that gets us just beyond that actor's performance, which is just out there. Yeah, it's out there, but it's also so minimal that you're left with these these delicious questions. But we'd often talked about like here's Allison, the girl who flies a plane with a mask of her own face on. Where did those masks come from? But then the show is so perfect because it'll deal with these very blatant metaphors of like Emily dealing with her identity. And there's literally a man stealing, you know, the public <laughs> face of that. And then you spring from that into that like bravura performance between like Tori DeVito and, Spen- and Troy and Balsario on the dock. Yeah, yeah. You know, as Melissa's like smashing the masks to her face and Spencer's confronting her. I mean, it's just, it's like a tour de force of PLO at its strongest. Yeah, and you know that that scene between the two sisters was shot at five in the morning. I remember this very, very clearly because we were all very tired. And it, and it's not just the two actresses; it's everybody around. Because I remember we had these guys who were part of the crew were in wetsuits, so they could go out there and fish the masks back out again. And it was just a a lot of fun because it's it's all psychological. When you get right down to it, there wasn't much there to find out except like, oh yeah, there's this place where she. The mask made, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and then somebody else also did that, and, and <laughs> even like Melissa did that, and God knows who else went by there to have their their face like immortalized. But it makes you feel something. Mm-hmm. That's the important thing. It's it's not it's not so important in terms of its plot mechanics mm-hmm. as much as it makes you feel something. It makes you feel something very specific, and I and I and I like that. You're right. <laughs> I think. 
you know, here's a free fan fiction idea for somebody. It's the next day the landlord shows up to get Hector Lime's rent, and he's like, I've got all these masks. <laughs> <laughs> I have no money, but I have all these masks of teenage girls' faces. <laughs> and who knows how many of those litter the Pennsylvania countryside. <laughs> There are a lot of people out there wearing masks and outside. <laughs> Speaking of fun characters, um, what's something you'd like to see Grandma Marin come back to Pretty Little Liars to do? I would really love, uh, I would love her to come back and be involved in, in, in something, some, some, some part of the mystery, as opposed to just babysitting Hannah. You know, mm-hmm. I wish she would get involved in, in some part of the mystery and then get into a big fight scene where we'd have to stunt double her. You know, and have her like roll over the top of a car or something. I don't know. I think it'd be fun. It's it was fun. Uh, I I had invited. Uh, no, no, I didn't invite. It. Like Oliver Goldstick went to uh, one of my sister's concerts, and it was just purely a um, uh, an aside. After the concert, I said you should you should make her uh, a grandmother on Pretty Little Liars, and he's like, I love that idea, Hannah's grandmother. And then the next thing I knew, he'd written the script for. And so she came in for the first episode, which I directed. Mm-hmm. And I thought she was a great character. Mm-hmm. I just can't tell. I would love to see your sister and Ashley Benson having like matching magnifying glasses, like snooping <laughs> around. That'd be wonderful. Well, so speaking of that, like you've gotten to work with a lot of actors you worked with before, like most of them friends, like like Anna Beth Gish or Claire Roots in season six. Bonnie how, yeah, how involved are you in the the casting of your episodes? Well, Bonnie, uh, well Annabeth, I didn't know until. I worked with her on Pretty Little Liars. That's when I met her. Uh, she she had known my sister before, and I think that they were both in the same episode, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think that the first episode my sister was in was was the first time I directed Annabeth. Mm-hmm. And so my friendship with Annabeth grew out of us working on the show together. Uh, Bonnie Root, who's in currently in 602 or she's in either 602 or 603, I can't remember. She... Uh, was somebody I suggested to them. Mm-hmm. There was this part, and I, I said I'd really love to work with her, and um, everybody liked her for audition. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, had, she had been in a um, movie that I had edited several years ago. But Annabeth, I, I met through the show. Okay. Okay. So, uh, what elements of the show do you wish that the teen audience appeal would pick up on or focus on besides theories or the relationships or just the constant like Twitter comments of "Come to Brazil." <laughs> <laughs> I get a lot of those. Yeah. <laughs> I think people look, I think people should enjoy the show on whatever level they enjoy the show. I don't wanna I don't wanna be pretentious about it or condescending about it. I do think this show is a much smarter show than it's given any kind of real credit for. I think it's 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 mm-hmm. very psychological. And I think it it's also empowering. To women, and and I and I think that it's about friends who really back each other up. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's the only cat fights you have on the show are are staged. You know, or like, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, or you know, I I, I guess there was Spencer taking Mona down that one time. But uh, the central thesis of the show is is the four girls and their friendship, and they're joining together to stand up against this nameless foe you know and um i think that there's something quite profound about that idea some people may laugh at that but i think i think it's very powerful and i think that's the success of the show is because of that whether people know it or not mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that there was a little more uh, discernment, maybe, about the nature of the romantic relationships. I don't think that the answer is in romance. I think, actually, Peter subverts that idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, uh, I like that about it. I think that there is a tendency for a lot of the young fans to think that, you know, it's about the mystery and who gets married and has babies. And they'll feel differently in 15, 20 years when they look back <laughs> on it. They'll look back on it and they'll go, what? Right, and right. I, I, I just think it's, you got some really smart writers in that writer's room. And they, I don't know that they even all necessarily consciously think about these things, but I know that there, there's a lot of debate about various things. I know that they're all very intelligent, psychological people, and and interesting stuff comes up to the surface. And, and I think the show uh, really stands up psychologically, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I find it interesting. I've seen some very interesting commentaries written on it, different things that you can find on the Internet that are very smart. You know, about the, the nature of how to read the show. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff that you guys do is, is really interesting. I, I really enjoy listening to your podcast because I think that you pick up on a lot of things that I pick up on. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I just deal with whatever script I'm given. I, I don't, you know, I, people talk to me on Twitter sometimes like I have some control over these things. I don't. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm friends with all the writers and I, I know the directions they're carrying some of the stories sometimes, but you know, they don't. They don't ask me what I think, and you know, if I told them, they probably just say, "Well, thanks for sharing." But uh, <laughs> I, I, I do think they're they're onto some really interesting stuff, and I just think it'll stand the test of time. I think ten years from now, it'll still be interesting because it's psychological. Mm-hmm. It's not plot driven. It's psychological. Mm-hmm. The plot is almost beside the point, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think that's one of the, the exciting things about it. And, and that's why I think you can be six seasons in and still not know what the answer to the mystery is. And um, that's fascinating. Right, right. That the show could endure for six seasons without giving people complete answers. It's because it's it's about things that are beneath that mystery. Mm-hmm. And as, as all good mysteries are, things that, that really are great mystery stories are about other things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, even a, a movie... Like the big sleep, you know. Tell me what that plot is. Right. It's like I, I don't know that you really could, you know, like break it down quickly. But you know, it's about other things. It's about other. It's like the Maltese Falcon. It's it's about what the stuffed dreams are made of. Yeah. Yes, Yes, that's exactly right. And and so you know, I I certainly try to encourage. I like to tease the fans. <laughs> it's it's pretty obvious if anybody follows me on Twitter that I like to to give them a hard time, but I, I'm really fond of the enthusiasm that I that I see evidenced, mm. and I certainly would never want to make anybody feel bad. It's never my intention to hurt anybody's feelings on Twitter or anything right. like that. So, but I do get irritated sometimes that people are are focused on the wrong things. You know that they're that they're like they just want these high school students that get married and have babies. I just you know I'll never. I'll never support that notion. Right. right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember feeling that way when I was young. But <laughs> right. Well, I, I makes sense. So I think I saw like somebody's reaction on, on Twitter, Instagram this morning. <laughs> you were joking about Ezra's murder cabin, and they were like, "Oh my god, what is happening in season six? <laughs> Ezra's murder cabin. I love that. You know, like 
there were a couple of um, uh, ladies on uh, Tumblr who have a, a, a Murdercam.tumblr, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that that uh, Tumblr site. And so, um, you know, this whole idea of Ezra's murder cabin, I think would just make a great anthology series. You know, it's kind of like every week, some cautionary tale about what kind of guy not to get involved with. And, and every week, Ezra just <laughs> introduces the story. <laughs> well, I, I had to make the joke uh, on Tumblr the other day that I, I almost see it as uh, like uh, Eric Romer's like uh, six amoral tales, you know, <laughs> like uh, Arya's Pink Stripe would be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that and that was very funny. <laughs> I think that that would be a really fun thing to do as a web series. You know? oh, yeah. <laughs> just like have, have uh, Ian Harding just uh, introduce these little cautionary tales. <laughs> and they're always unfinished. There's no like, there's no resolution. You know? It's like people disappear into Ezra's murder cabin and that's the last we ever hear of them. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah the murder cam, cabin tumblr i check that occasionally and it's it's almost because of them that i think on the podcast we started saying but also because it felt more true to us ezra's fuck cabin <laughs> yeah i just don't know if that would fly as a title <laughs> <laughs> he's such a sleazebag you know there is one question we had um of the shows you've worked on that have either ended or, or been canceled if you could bring just one back to uh do another episode of which one would it be Probably be Gossip Girl, just because that was a really happy time in my life, and uh, I really enjoyed working with that cast and working in New York on somebody else's dime. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, it was a great period of time. It was a great period of time in my life. And you said that you were telling us that you're you're going back to Rizzolian Isles soon. So just in case if anyone's not aware, like what other shows are you currently directing? Like you did Jane the Virgin this season. Yeah, I uh, well I do the Fosters a lot. I go back there in December. I um, go to Rizzoli Niles uh, after this. I go to Chasing Life after Rizzoli Niles. Then I go back to Rizzoli Niles. And then I'm coming back to Pretty Little Liars. Uh, I'm basically there to supervise. Not really supervise, because uh, she won't need any supervision. The, the script supervisor, Paula Hunsaker, is directing her first episode. Oh, cool. So usually when they um, have somebody who's never directed an episode of television before, They'll hire a director to be there as essentially an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Not that she needs it; she'll be great. She's been at the show since the very beginning. You know, it's it's really going to be two weeks of me sitting around with my feet up, reading <laughs> in the background while she directs. But uh, but I'm glad because it'll give me a chance to you know be a part of the second half of the season mm-hmm. and um, see what else comes up. I did Mysteries of Laura this last year. I hope that show gets picked up because I love her mm-hmm. in New York. Paul Hunziker, like of the many people and things we were watching when we were on set last week, like the script supervisor, that was one position I just I couldn't take my eyes off how hard she works, the focus she has to have during each take. I don't know. It was just it was fascinating just to watch her her moving with the script. It's tremendous, and and um, it's 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 a very hard job. And script supervisors often make really great directors, and I'm sure that Paula will be one as well. One of my favorite directors that's working right now is a woman named Jennifer Getzinger, who directs a lot of Mad Men, and uh, she was the script supervisor on that initially, I think. She'd been the script supervisor, if I'm not mistaken, I think she was on Sex in the City. She'd done uh, a lot of shows, um, and, and she's one of my favorite directors working. I just think she's a wonderful, wonderful director. But they they are sitting right there next to director after director after director. So it seems like it would be a great job not only just to teach them the mechanics of uh, what's necessary and what, what 
that's needed because part of their job is to remind you, do you need this shot? Do you need that shot? Do you need, mm-hmm. do you need the reverse on this or that? But that they can look at all these different directing styles and integrate what they think works, what they think doesn't work. It seems like it would be probably one of the more interesting places to observe from. I am getting much more into As time goes on, though, I like un- uninterrupted camera movement. It's very hard to do on a TV show because you don't have the time to, to always do it right. But I do enjoy doing shots that last for a long time. Mm-hmm. And on the premiere of season five, we did a Steadicam shot that was a block long that we could have used as one shot. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. But we also shot coverage on it. We shot it from different angles. So, and, and some of that was really interesting, too. So it ended up being cut up. But the original shot, I, I need to pull that out of my daily sometime. It was posted on YouTube or something because it was an extraordinary shot, block long. And we did three of them, and the third one was perfect. Uh, and there's something about the dynamic of, of camera movement with montage that's, I think, the best way to go. You don't want a whole show to be cut up, but you don't want it all to be a single camera movie either. Like, I, I found Birdman <laughs> tiresome because there were plenty of places within it where I wanted to be on the other person better mm-hmm. when I wasn't. And, and I felt like you could have, it would have been just as impressive if there had been some places in there where you cut back and forth. Uh, I, I, I didn't. I didn't see the need for for doing it as a single shot all the way through. I mean, Hitchcock tried that with rope and to a significant degree with under camera porn, and he realized it ultimately doesn't work because mm-hmm. there there are places where you, you want to be elsewhere. You want to be on the other person. You want to cut back and forth. You want to see the shot and you want to see the reaction shot. The best example I can think of, of of having the best of both those worlds was probably um, what is that episode of the X Files? I think it's Triangle. Triangle. Where they do a lot of yeah. split, split screen. You know, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, but like stylistically, it's very interesting to see some of the the long one take shots with some of the other angles just to get you know both. Yeah, sure. Well, I think I think that I think that's what I'm saying is I think that there's a real place for both. It's a balance. It's a, it's a dialectic between the two that, that makes it interesting. Like, I feel like on most television shows, there's way too many cuts. Mm-hmm. There's way too many cuts. And, I, and I, I frequently get irritated if I come in and if I have an editor that's just cut happy. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, you know, oftentimes I'll say, well, why did you cut there? And they'll say, well, I just felt like it was time to cut. I, that, that's not a reason to cut. There always needs to be a new piece of psychological information on every cut. Mm-hmm. From my taste, I frequently see shows because you know, as a, as a visiting director, you do your cut and then you leave it and you you move on and then you see it on the air. And there's sometimes where I'm just banging my head on the coffee table because it's just it's overcut, mm-hmm. and um, that's subject. You know, it's a subjective call, but I, I feel like that if if there's not a reason to cut psychologically, then one should. Sometimes you have to cut things, you know, to speed it up, or you have to cut things because somebody flubbed a line, and this part was great, and this date, and that part was great over there. And but, but uh, I always, I always like it when it feels like that every cut is psychologically motivated. You mentioned Mad Men. Are there any other TV shows you're currently watching or currently into? Yeah, I, I like a lot of TV shows. I mean, I really enjoyed the first couple of seasons of House of Cards. I watched the first couple of episodes of the third season, and I'm enjoying that. I started watching Empire last weekend, which I thought was hilarious. I really, I really like that. I know you mentioned your your affection for Manhattan. I think it's called. 
Yeah, I really like that show a lot. I think the writing on that show is brilliant and it's dense and it really commands your attention because to follow it, you really have to be watching. You can't like be thumbing through a magazine at the same time. And um, I, I just think it's very, very rich. It's historical. It feels very accurate to me, and it's psychological. Most of all, it's psychological. It tells a psychological story about these people by telling a story about this particular point in history where these people were in a fishbowl. And... Um, I, I, I think it's a very smart show. I, I'm looking forward to it coming back. It's also just philosophical. It just really is about the nature of where we are as a species, you know, that we're able to crack the atom and, and create these weapons of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that philosophically, it's, it's just a it's very, very smart show. And I like it a lot. I love Breaking Bad. I love The Wire. I thought The Wire was a phenomenal show. I didn't see it when it initially aired and kept talking about it and then um, bought the first season of it and sat on my bookshelf for a really long time and then finally we sat down to watch it and watched the whole thing in three weeks. Just <laughs> I feel like reading a really great novel mm -hmm. in, um, about the life of a city. So I like that a lot. I'm still trying to get Marco to watch season three. Of The Wire? Yeah, he's only watched the first two. Um, so this is a fascinating digression for anyone listening to this, but, uh, I was on vacation visiting Benjamin and I think three days of that vacation was just spent watching the first two seasons of the wire. Cause it started with, Hey, you should watch the first five minutes of this pilot and see what you think. And then we just kind of absorbed the show for like three days. I think that's really a fun thing to do and it's it's a great period of time because you can do that i i like this british series the fall i think the fall is a really smart show and again i think it's uh deceptive i know i've made plenty of jokes about uh the young teenager on the fall being very uh aria-esque <laughs> <laughs> um so basically i guess kind of pivot from that to how did you feel the calling of of this world of, of filmmaking of editing like like what drew you to this well as I said, I um, was a Hitchcock fan. Mm. I was the kind of kid, even in elementary school, I was watching a lot of Hitchcock movies. I don't even know how I got hooked on them, but I did. And I would um, scour the TV schedules trying to find when they were on or, you know, I'd stay up all night. My parents let me, you know, I'd say there's this Hitchcock movie on in the middle of the night. And I'd say, okay. And, you know, I'd get up and watch it. And, and um, I bought the Truffaut book. When I was 12, mm -hmm. and um, pretty much committed it to memory, because my dad was like, "I'm advising you don't don't buy that book because you'll never read it again." And I wanted to prove him wrong, so I uh, bought it, defiance of his advice, and um, I still have it. I still have a copy of it right over here somewhere. I just was fascinated by the idea of how you could put together these pieces of film and make people have an emotional experience. So um, I uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do when I went to college. I was majoring in history for the first couple of years, and I was very, very confused about what career I would have. And uh, my uh, mom said to me one day, I was having lunch with her, and she says, well, if you could do anything at all you wanted to do, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd work in movies. And she said, well, you should do that. Go to film school. And so I, uh, I was at the time, I was going to the University of Texas at Arlington. I just packed up a car, and I drove out to California and got into USC as a film student. I don't recommend film school. I 
don't think it's necessary. I think it's a far better thing. I, I, I tend to advise people to study literature, art, and music because I think that literature teaches you storytelling and, and narrative. Uh, art teaches you composition, and music teaches you dynamics and structure. And I think that's the best training for any occupation in filmmaking is, is to get a good liberal arts education. If I had to do over again, I would do that. But that being said, I did meet a lot of people in film school that are still my friends and that are been successful in the business, so I guess there's that side to it. <laughs> but then I got out of film school, and my sister is, is, is a successful actress. She was in a movie um, that was shooting near our hometown called Tender Mercies, and she heard that the editor was looking for an assistant, so she told him, she said, my brother just got out of film school. And so, you know, I owe my career to nepotism. <laughs> and um, then I quickly did three films uh, that were shot in Texas and posted in New York, Tender Mercy's Silkwood and Places in the Heart. So those were my first three films. Hmm. And so I thought that my whole career would be one Oscar-winning film after another. But um, <laughs> then I went through a whole Roger Corman phase where I worked at Roger Corman. I started editing in television Around 2000, I think, I, I did a um, pilot of a series called Witchblade. Then I, I had a whole series of pilots I did for Warner Brothers, and they were they all went to series. I never edited a pilot that didn't get picked up a series. And so um, that gave me a certain amount of weight as an editor. Mm. I was in demand, and, and then when I did the pilot of the OC, I told them I wanted to direct, and they said, okay. And I was like, okay, that's the way it happened. Awesome. So uh, I think we're probably getting close to the uh, the end here. I think one thing we feel like we have to ask about is uh, spinoff ideas for PLL. I know uh, Tanner and Kavanaugh is definitely one you've been talking about on Twitter lately. For a long time, I, uh, I liked the idea of Hastings and Hastings, which I still think is worth a spinoff. Mm-hmm. So, um, my pitch for that would be you never see them in an episode together. It's just one or the other. <laughs> we <laughs> And it's usually when they're on the road, mm-hmm. uh, doing whatever case they do while they're on the road. And uh, my, my favorite part of that is, is Peter Hastings closes the bar every night at whatever motel he's in and ends up singing a lot of karaoke. Or <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. playing saxophone. <laughs> uh, but Tanner and Kavanaugh, I think, has become my new favorite. Just the, the existential procedural. They never solve anything. They just talk a lot about it. She just expresses her disdain for all things Rosewood. <laughs> I think our dream is to someday end up in a room with, like in front of you, like pitching these shows. I think uh, our Hastings and Hastings and Hastings and Hastings pitch is that like not only are they maybe never in the same room together, they all hire Miles Corwin, the PI, to spy on each other. Yeah, they all have him on retainer. Yeah. And they're always going to spas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, Veronica's always going to spas with one daughter or the other. And uh, <laughs> I had uh, I had uh, dinner a couple of weeks ago with Leslie Farah and her husband in uh, Roma Mafia, and I was spinning all kinds of ideas for Tanner and Kevin <laughs> off, and then a, a crossover episode with Hastings and Hastings. So <laughs> I don't know. I think there's like all kinds of spinoffs you could do. You know, Nancy Marin, Lady Banker. <laughs> <laughs> I really like the idea of uh, Tanner and Kavanaugh as like an anti-procedural because uh, in a lot of ways PLL is like an anti-mystery show. It's like exactly. as as time goes on, the mystery only gets more complicated and the dead person is actually alive and, and everything makes less sense than it did before. I, know, and it's, it, I mean, it, I, there are 
there is something about the whole idea of like, you know, there's nothing to figure out. It's not going to ever like come to any kind of satisfying conclusion because life is complicated. <laughs> that's just, that's just the reality. But I just love the idea, like, like, like an Antonioni film, bringing it back to Antonioni, that uh, Toby and um, Linda Tanner, they kind of wander around town and they find various bodies and mysteries, but they lose interest. <laughs> and they just kind of go wandering around the countryside and, and nothing ever really gets solved. <laughs> they never really find anybody that's missing. They never solve any of the murders. It just all remains kind of risk for the... The Antonio movie meets like a like a Paul Auster novel. I think in the pilot you introduce there's the whiteboard which has the victim's name. That's the case they're working on. And by the finale, like that name is still there. There's just like twenty more <laughs> names <laughs> added to it. We were laughing today about how the whiteboard is really expanded now. It's mm. probably like two whiteboards somewhere in the Rosewood Police Department, you know, with pieces of yarn connecting them and uh I don't know. I just think that there's something about all of it that's pretty delightful. I'm glad you guys like it so much. It's really fun <laughs> to listen to your podcast. It really is. I mean, we joke about the fact that, like, oh, somebody, somebody gets what it is that we really like about the job we do. <laughs> Joe and Troy and I were laughing about that the other day. Like, it's like somebody understands us. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, um, I think that just about does it. I really want to thank you for, for coming on and giving us so many great insights into how the show's made. Yeah, and for having well, us on the set. Yeah, well, we really enjoyed your visit. I mean, a lot of the people that wanted to talk to you and, 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 and meet you were really disappointed that I didn't get that chance. So I guess we'll just have to do podcasts with them. Okay. All right. Thanks for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah.